Hi, this is Ben Lowell, and this is Back to the Bible Canada with Dr. John Newfeld. Well, we continue our series today, Remaining Steadfast in Distressing Times. So turn to your Bible to 1 Thessalonians chapter 2, verses 1 to 7, as Dr. Newfeld brings us a message entitled, Marks of a Christian Leader. Whenever qualified leaders lead a local church, well, the chances are that people will feel drawn towards God, the church will grow, many will learn how to live a life of faith. Healthy spiritual leadership normally gives birth to a Christian community that is intent on imitating Christ. That's why there is so much in our Bible that talks about the qualifications of Christian leadership. 1 Timothy chapter 3 and Titus chapter 1 presents us with a list of character traits that must be there in every Christian leader. And and interestingly enough, these aren't presented as ideals or as something one hopes to achieve at some time in the future. I mean, these are requirements for leadership. Requirements are tough. But why? Well, part of the answer to that is found in Hebrews 13 verse 7, and it says, Remember your leaders, those who spoke to you the word of God. Consider the outcome of their way of life and imitate their faith. That is, the lives of Christian leaders are to be emulated. That means that the qualifications for leadership found in 1 Timothy and Titus are what we would expect to find in all Christians, that is, as they grow in their faith and as they submit to the Holy Spirit's promptings. God wants all of us to live holy lives, and therefore, if a leader is hot-tempered, Well, God's people might think, well, I guess it's okay to lose your temper, and it really must not be that big of a deal. Or if a leader doesn't love what's good, God's people won't strive to do the same. If a leader doesn't have a depth of insight into God's Word and is not able to teach well, well, in that case, God's people will will lose the sense of the central importance of the Scriptures, and they're going to be thinking that it's okay to entertain non-scriptural ideas. I could make this point about all the things that 1 Timothy 3 and and Titus 1 stresses. Leaders need to create a desire in God's people to be godly, and that's just an imperative. That's why unhealthy leadership has a habit of bringing about an unhealthy church. When leaders gossip, churches gossip. When leaders assassinate the character of others, that becomes standard. When leaders don't know the flock personally or care about the flock, one begins to have a church where caring isn't central. I mean, most often, but not always, a church will begin to take upon itself the characteristics of its leaders. And so from 1 Thessalonians 2, 1 to 7, I do want to speak to leaders. And as we all know, there are a number of different kinds of leaders. There are are pastors, and by the way, in the New Testament, I don't know if you know this, but the word pastor and the word elder, well, they are synonymous. It's the very same office. The New Testament taught and believed that all pastors are elders and all elders are pastors. Well, there are other leaders in a church. There are deacons. There are Bible study leaders. There are leaders in some other service area. I know of people whose leadership has inspired others to join them, for instance, in ministering to the poor or in teaching kids or in caring for a church building. I mean, the list just goes on and on. And in essence, wherever leadership is given, God wants you to be a godly leader, influencing, modeling, reproducing yourself. So let's read today's text. So I'm reading 1 Thessalonians chapter 2, verses 1 to 7. For you yourselves know, brothers, that our coming to you was not in vain. 
But though we had already suffered and been shamefully treated at Philippi, as you know, we had boldness in our God to declare to you the gospel of God in the midst of much conflict. For our appeal does not spring from error or impurity or any attempt to deceive, but just as we have been approved by God to be entrusted with the gospel, so we speak not to please man, but to please God who tests our hearts. For we never came with words of flattery, as you know, nor with a pretext for greed, God is witness, nor did we seek glory from people, whether from you or from others, though we could have made demands as apostles of Christ. But we were gentle among you like a nursing mother taking care of her own children. Well, the book of 1 Thessalonians is a book written to a group of new believers. They had encountered Christ and they'd been changed. Now, the challenge was to live within that transformation. And Paul was convinced that if these new Christians imitated him, who was their leader, they'd become a healthy Christian community. So he said, watch me. Do what I'm doing. Imitate my way of life. And and qualified leaders speak that way. That kind of talk does lead many of us who lead, including me, wondering if we've ever been qualified. And all leaders, to be truthful, are aware of their shortcomings and their sins, but that doesn't necessarily disqualify them. From the passage we've just read, let me point out five very important and necessary qualifications of all Christian leaders. The first qualification Christian leaders are keenly aware of what God has called them to do. That is, they don't simply lead because they like to be up front. Rather, they lead understanding their mission and their goal, their God-given vision for service. Look again at verse 1. For you yourselves know, brothers, that our coming to you was not in vain. That's very important. As we know, Paul had been driven out of Thessalonica. His stay had been short. The reaction to his coming had caused a riot in the city, and a lesser leader might have been tempted to think he was a failure there. Not so with Paul. He says his coming was not in vain, and the Greek word indicates that he believed that his coming was not a failure. It was not without its desired effect. It was not a bad visit. Indeed, it was a smashing success. And what's more, Paul begins with the words, for you yourselves know, that is, Paul had communicated to the believers what his success actually looked like. See, Paul didn't come to Thessalonica in order to bring peace and harmony to the city. He had come to establish a church and he had succeeded. Yeah, people now hated him and yeah, people followed him to the next city in order to drive him all out of Macedonia, but he hadn't failed. And that's the example for all of us. We need to know what God has called us to do and to know whether or not we've done it. Good leaders focus on that thing like a laser beam. They might fail in the aspirations of others, but they know what God has called them to do. You know, if other good things would have happened in the city, like, you know, the city of Thessalonica would have liked Paul, I mean, that would have been great. But that doesn't determine whether or not his ministry has been a success. The second qualification of an effective leader. It's the courage to keep doing what God has called him or her to do. Let me put it quite plainly. It is impossible to lead without courage. When courage is lacking, would-be leaders forget what God has called them to do. And where there is a clear vision from God and where there is courage, good leaders simply carry on. Let's look at verse 2. But though we had already suffered and been shamefully treated at Philippi, as you know, 
We had boldness in our God to declare to you the gospel of God in the midst of much conflict. Paul first arrived in Macedonia. His first missionary assignment had been in Philippi. Thereafter, he had cast out a demon from a slave girl. That sparked a riot in that city. Now, they weren't happy because a demon had been driven out of the city and a slave girl was set free. No, they were furious. They couldn't keep abusing that slave girl any longer, and they couldn't use her to make money as a fortune teller. So a riot ensued, and the crowd dragged Paul before the magistrates. And even though Paul was a Roman citizen, without so much of a trial and without any due process, they simply beat him with rods until he was badly bloodied, and then they put him in stocks and they threw him into prison. That's what Paul means when he said he had suffered and been shamefully treated. What had been done to him was frankly illegal, it was immoral, it was unjust, and, he says, it was shameful and disgraceful. And when I read this, I find myself encouraged. Paul says that he came to Thessalonica with boldness, but he says more. He says he had boldness in our God. That is, it was God who emboldened us, God who helped us in our distress, and we just didn't give up from what he told us to do. There's something wonderful about the Christian who's not intimidated by hard times. I know in a day in which we live where disease is haunting the land, many Christians are discouraged and fearful and depressed. Good Christian leaders model courage in the face of other things that cause some to give up. Good Christian leaders don't give up doing what God has called them to do, even when it's tough or when opposition grows, but instead they find their courage in God. That is, they remember why and to what God has called them, and therefore they just go on. And so in the midst of fierce opposition, Paul just went right on doing what God had called him to do. He preached the gospel. He said, in the midst of conflict, he declared Christ and him crucified, even when there were some who wanted nothing more than for him to just shut up. I want to encourage God's people to learn more about what God has called them to do and to keep on doing the master's work regardless of how difficult or discouraging or fearful are the obstacles in the way. May it be said of us that we are doing our master's business until he comes for us. The command to make disciples is not just for church leaders or congregations. It's for every believer and every ministry effort in Jesus' name. Back to the Bible Canada is a disciple-making ministry through its teaching, broadcasts, and publications. One of these publications includes the bi-monthly magazine, Truth and Life. This year, Truth and Life has had a unique discipleship focus, with each issue highlighting a different marker of discipleship. It's our hope that each of the elements of discipleship explored will help lay a foundation of what it really means to be a follower of Jesus. And thank you so much for your continued financial support. Your gifts allow resources like Truth and Life magazine and so many others to fulfill its mission and provide trustworthy Bible resources at no cost. To subscribe and receive a free copy of the next issue mailed directly to your home, visit backtothebible.ca or call 1-800-663-2425. We've seen two important principles for leadership 
The first is that good leaders are aware of what God has called them to do. And second, that good leaders have the courage to keep on doing what God has called them to do, no matter how difficult life becomes and no matter how many people oppose them. Thirdly, good leaders are keenly sensitive as to whether or not they're pleasing to God. Good leaders recognize that we must all appear before the judgment seat of Christ where we will be called upon to give an account. Good leaders understand that the greatest test of their leadership is not the praise of men, but the appraisal that comes from God. So look again at verses 3 and 4. For appeal does not spring from error or impurity or any attempt to deceive. But just as we have been approved by God to be entrusted with the gospel, so we speak not to please man, but to please God who tests our hearts. There are two key phrases in that passage. The most important of the two is the last phrase, that is, Paul's attestation that God tests our hearts. In the Bible and in the writings of Paul, the heart always signifies the center of a person. It is, if you will, the point of integration between the physical, the emotional, the the intellectual, the moral, and the the spiritual being. It's, It's the centerpiece that holds us together, that integrates us as one person. And so when Paul says that God is testing his heart, he means that God is doing the most thorough job imaginable at investigating both Paul's actual ministry and also his motivation for ministry. Now, moving backward in our section of the text, this explains why Paul says that when he speaks, he's not trying to please man, but God. He's ever aware that the judge of his ministry is not the applause of men, nor is it the amount of hits that he gets on his Twitter feed, but rather how God's probing and testing and dissecting everything that he does. Now, when you think about it, it's not simply the attitude of good leaders. That should be the attitude that we all have, regardless of what we're doing. I'm reminded of Colossians 3.17, and whatever you do, in word or deed, do everything in the name of the Lord Jesus, giving thanks to God the Father through him. It's quite a phrase, whatever you do, waking or sleeping, eating, exercising, working at your job, crashing at the end of the day, whether it's making love to your spouse or teaching your Sunday school class, there's not one thing, says Paul, that we should ever do that is not to the glory of God and with the accent on doing it in the name of Jesus. Think then how crazy it would be if Paul began to do things with an interest in being a people pleaser especially for us who live in a, in a culture that worships movie stars and, and athletes. It's so easy for us to admire people like that and think how wonderful it would be if the world just swooned over us as it did over them. Paul says, I never thought that way, never motivated me, not for a second. Now, we don't know with any certainty what, what Paul meant when he said that God tests him. You know, he might be referring to his trials, or he might be referring to his conviction that that God keeps notes on what he's been doing, or it may have been, you know, with a supernatural revelation in which God actually tested Paul in in some way. I mean, we just don't know. He he doesn't explain that. But, But here's what we do know. When a leader is fully and wholly aware that God is probing their ministry, it naturally leads to three wonderful results. Paul says, because I know I'm being probed by God, I was able to resist three temptations, and the first is error. That is, I I was confused or wrong when I presented the message. That's because Paul's message, you know, had been given to him directly by Jesus. Jesus had appeared to him, called him to be an apostle, and then supernaturally taught him. 
It wasn't Paul's message. It was Christ's message. And I need for myself to stop here and say that no modern Christian leader can say what Paul just said. The foundation for Christian truth has now been laid once and for all. All the modern Christian leader can say is this, I wasn't in error because I didn't present my own message. Rather, I said that which came out of an exhaustive study of verse by verse looking at Scripture. The best a leader can say is, it wasn't ever my word. It was a careful attempt to present the Bible and make it relevant. Now, the second temptation Paul never succumbed to was having impure motives. And the word impure speaks about moral filth, but it also speaks of a person who allows their own greed to motivate them. Paul means that he wasn't looking for something from his hearers. He he doesn't want something from them, nor is he looking for a reward from them. He doesn't want their money. He doesn't want to use their influence. He, He doesn't see them as a solution for his own personal goals. And that the third temptation Paul never gave into is, as he says in our translation, any attempt to deceive. And the Greek word here is the word trickery. This is a Greek word that was also used for lures to catch fish. A lure is a way to to fool a fish. You know, the fish assumes its food only to find out when it's too late that it's been caught. In the same way, we know there are some teachers who never tell you the whole or their entire message. They wait until you're all the way through the door before they reveal what they're really up to. Paul never tricked people. He, he told them the gospel up front. He hid nothing, even the parts where Christ demands that everyone who follows him must pick up his or her cross and follow him. Now, why did he resist these temptations? Well, because he was aware that God was probing his heart and that in the end of the day, he'd have to give an account for everything that he did. We've looked at three marks of excellent Christian leaders, leaders that inspire us to imitate them. I mean, first, they know what God has called them to do. And second, they have the courage to do what God has called them to do. And third, they're acutely aware of their accountability before God. And now, fourth, the only demands they place on people, well, those are the demands that God places on his people. See, I know plenty of people who, when they're in leadership, stop being people of principle. Instead, seeing their unique position now, they use it to get people to serve them and to satisfy them or to get their own way. And that's why, as an example, so many leaders fall into sexual sin. They think everyone's there to serve them. But godly leaders make no demands on anyone outside of those demands that God makes on them. Look again at verses 5 and 6. For we never came with words of flattery, as you know, nor with a pretext for greed. God is witness." Nor did we seek glory from people, whether from you or from others, though we could have made demands as apostles of Christ. You know, the demands that Paul is speaking about, that is, the demands which he might have rightfully made, well, that's the demand that they supply him with an income. And it would have been a legitimate demand. So listen, for instance, to 1 Corinthians 9, 13 and 14. Do you not know that those who are employed in the temple service get their food from the temple? Those who serve at the altar share in the sacrificial offerings. In the same way, the Lord commanded that those who proclaim the gospel should get their living from the gospel. Paul was a tent maker, and that's how he earned his living in Thessalonica. He was concerned, especially among those who were his enemies, that they might say he was only in this for the money. And so in order to take away this potential charge, a charge that would take attention away from the gospel, Paul never took a salary. 
Look, the application of this passage is not that we should demand that our pastors do the same. It is right, it is honorable, it's proper that a local church pastor make a good wage to compensate him for his work. That's not the point of the passage. The point, however, is that we demand that pastors and leaders are known for selflessness. Their motivation in ministry is not fame or flattery or anything else, but rather they are to be motivated to fulfill the call of God and to do that for which God has commissioned them. Now let's look at the fifth and the last mark of godly leadership. It's the attitude of love and gentleness that we need to see in our leaders. Leaders, if they're good and godly, genuinely love the people they lead. It's nothing for them to emulate Jesus, to bow before their people, and to wash their feet. Good and godly leaders are deeply concerned with how their people are doing and as to whether or not they're growing in Christ. Now let's have a look at verse 7. But we were gentle among you like a nursing mother taking care of her own children. You know, when I began this teaching today, I said that we ought not to simply demand these things in our leaders but we should also seek to emulate these things in ourselves. For even if you're not a leader, if you're self-willed, if you're unaware of what Christ wants you to do, if you're unwilling to pay the price that Christ wants you to pay, if you never think of the day in which you must give an account, if you don't love others, you're not growing in Christ and you're not living a life pleasing to the Lord. See, this is not just for godly leaders. This is for all of us. This is how God wants us to live. Thanks, John. You know, I absolutely believe that God has called me, he's called you, he's called all of us for a purpose. Where I struggle is at times understanding where that call is leading me. How can I have confidence in God's calling for my life? Yeah, I mean, uh, I think, Ben, you're talking about, you know, those kind of things that are personal to us. And, you know, am I doing those things that God wants me to do right now? And, and, and I think a, a great many of the answers to that are, you know, it has to do with how you view your own giftedness and uh, coming aware of what gifts the Holy Spirit is doing and cooperating with, the, with the, the gift package that the Holy Spirit has given to you. But then in terms of how that actually works out, you know, I kind of think that sometimes that just, you know, God by his sovereignty leads us along a certain path. And we do best not to question, you know, am I in the right place, but just to say, I'm going to be as faithful as I know how to be in the place that God has put me right now. And, uh, you know, a uh, little is much when God is in it. And so whatever it is that God has me to do, I'm going to do that. I, I think we can be certain in that way. Thanks so much, John. And remember to join us again tomorrow right here on Back to the Bible Canada where we teach the Bible. Last month, Back to the Bible Canada wrapped up another fiscal year. Every year, our gratitude and appreciation are renewed by the generosity you shower upon us. Your financial gifts of any amount, your prayers, your support, they do so much to sustain and grow this Bible teaching ministry. Each of you are stakeholders in the mission of Back to the Bible Canada, and it's a privilege to partner with you. The ministry is now diving in head first to another year of faithful, expositional Bible teaching by Dr. John Newfeld and so many other ministry opportunities that God has placed before us. We can't wait to see what God unfolds. May I express our deep gratitude for all you do 
If you'd like more information about Back to the Bible Canada or its associated ministries, give us a call at 1-800-663-2425 or visit backtothebible.ca.